holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. I hope that you and yours, your nearest and dearest, your friends and family are all keeping safe and well in these strange trying times that we're living in. We're all doing our bit to to try and slow down the spread of COVID-19, the coronavirus, and hopefully... Hopefully everyone listening to this is in a a good, safe, healthy place uh, in body and in mind. Mind is important as well because for a lot of people there's been a big change of routine and that that can be something that's difficult to deal with, hence the reason that there is another podcast today. I'm trying to keep everything as uh, normal as possible, as on track as possible. So the routines from work might have changed, your childcare routines, your kids might be home from school when they should be, you know, out all day and not under your feet. But uh, hopefully with the podcasts, we can just have this little corner of, of what was normality, even if it is in your ears for 45 minutes to an hour every Friday and Monday. And of course, with some special episodes dropped in there as well, like we did this week, the interview with Sesc Fabregas, which um, I have to say has produced the most amount of feedback to any episode I have ever done. And I've been doing this show since 2006, and we've had some fantastic guests and some fantastic episodes but in terms of the feedback and the uh, the way people have reacted to it it's been uh, unbelievable so I just want to thank everybody for that and for all the comments uh, I've had lots of emails and I've tried to respond uh, to every single one of those emails if I haven't yet I will get around to it on social media it's much more difficult there's just like my Twitter timeline since Monday has just been like So, you know, there it's impossible to reply to everybody, but I I have been reading them, and I just want to say uh, to all of you, thank you very much. On Instagram as well, I've tried to read them, but it's weird. The the message thing on Instagram is weird, and I did notice a couple in there which, you know, are asking me questions, and, and, uh, you know, I have no problem uh, with answering questions and with doing that for people if they want to get in touch, but please, please don't send uh, messages that way it's much better to email my email address is on the website you can use the contact form on the website or you can just send an email just go to the the page on arsblog.com which has the contact details on it send me an email it might take me a little bit of time to get around to it but i will definitely answer your email and i will answer your query as quickly as i can it's just that if you send messages on instagram and some of them you have to like press buttons to see who's sending you stuff and then you have to click and, and it's hard to 
type on phones. I don't like doing a lot of typing on phones if I can help it. So if there's anything important or if there's anything you want to know or if you do just want to get in touch, just send an email. I prefer email. I like email. It's nice. It's polite. It's it's sort of there and I can deal with it uh, as and when I get time to deal with it. And I always do get around uh, to answering people's emails. So uh, use that. Use that, please. Uh, and again, just thanks a million for for listening and thanks for sharing it and and especially thanks to uh, people who kind of stuck up for me a bit uh, when the snippets from the interview were being um, pilfered and put online without any accreditation. I've got to say that for the very most part, a lot of the big news organizations that took things from uh, the uh, from the interview did give a credit and, and did give a link back to the website within the articles themselves. It wasn't necessarily always apparent in the tweet that they might have sent it. They might have put a headline, Fabregas, this, that, and the other, and it wouldn't necessarily mention Arsblog. But in the article itself, it did. So thank you to those guys as well. There have, of course, been people who have taken the content of the interview and used it for their own content without even a word or a hint of where it came from, those people can go and fuck themselves. And on the way back from going to fuck themselves, I hope a bird shits in their mouth. And I don't mean a sparrow, I mean a fucking ostrich or something like that. Uh, but what can you do? Some people are just wankers. To uh, to new listeners who might have uh, listened to the Arscast for the first time uh, with Sesk and are now tuning in, uh, welcome. It's good to have you along. I can't say that they're all quite as, you know, exclusive and in-depth and former Arsenal captain and stuff like that. You know, we, we do podcasts on a range of stuff, but they're all special in their own way. You know, they're, they're like children. Some of them are better than others. You love them all, but you might like one better than the rest. What can I tell you? This is uh, Audio Child number 571. And it is difficult to, you know, follow up an interview like that with someone like Cesc Fabregas, particularly at a time when there is no football, there's no transfer rumours, there's no matches, there's no nothing going on from a... from a There's no nothing going on. There isn't anything going on from a sporting point of view, a football point of view. So all you can do is look behind you into the past. And that's what we're doing today. Because in the uh, late 70s and the very, very early 80s, Arsenal played in three FA Cup finals and a European final, 1978, 1979 and 1980. We reached the FA Cup final three years in a row and we reached the Cup Winners' Cup final in 1980 as well. I thought we might look back on those games and that period in Arsenal history. Okay, maybe it wasn't the most successful but still interesting, and a lot went on, and I know that many of you listening to this lived through it and <laughs> potentially don't want to relive it, but there are also people listening who weren't even born and who, uh, you know, are aware of what happened, but maybe not quite how. So I thought we'd we'd look at those finals, and I'm delighted to welcome back to the show someone who has written many books about Arsenal, including Rebels for the Cause and the excellent Red Letter Days, 14 dramatic events that shook Arsenal. It's John Sperling. Hi, John. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm not too bad, thanks. 1978. 
Arsenal reached the FA Cup final. And maybe just put it a little bit in context. In 1976, Terry Neal, a former Arsenal player, had taken over at a very uh, a young age. I think he was only 34 or 35, having previously managed some team down the road. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and obviously this came in the wake of the Bertie Mee era and, and what have you. But maybe just set the scene and, and tell people a bit about what, what Arsenal and football was like in 1978. Yeah, so in in the mid in the mid seventies, Arsenal had f- really flirted with relegation on, on more than one occasion. Mm. Um, they had some talented individuals like uh, like Alan Ball, for instance, and um, they had Brian Kidd. But I think that Terry Neal's best um, ever signing really was was Don Howe, um, who was coach when we won the double in, in seventy one, and he brought him back. And what he was able to do is to mould a, a talented group of individuals into uh, a team um, and also oversee the, the kind of emergence in by the late 70s of the London Irish, of, of mm. Liam Brady, of David O'Leary, um, Pat Jennings, um, Pat Rice, um, Frank Stapleton and, and others. And I think that that was really what um, pushed Arsenal towards those, those three FA Cup finals. In 1978, the path to the final, when you look at it, is pretty, or it looks relatively normal compared to what's to come in 1979 and 1980, which of course we'll get to a comprehensive win over Sheffield United in the in the third round, and then there were wins over Wolves, Walsall, Wrexham, and, and Leighton yeah. Orient in the semi-final. So, you know, on paper now, looking at it um, through the prism of 2020, those are teams that you would, you know, pretty much expect Arsenal to beat. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I say I've got the list in, in, in front of me there, and and I think that, that what it what it uh, what, what it's notable for is Malcolm McDonald's um, amazing goal scoring run. I mean, he scored twice against Sheffield United. You know, he scored against Wolves. He scored against Walsall. He scored against Wrexham, and then in the semi final, um, sort of older Arsenal fans might have seen this. He scored two goals, which, which are credited to him, and I think it was the second one took a double deflection. <laughs> of um, Orient defenders, which of course Malcolm McDonald kind of kind of claimed anyway. I think also notable for that cup run is is Willie Young, who had taken time to win over the hearts of Arsenal fans because he, like Terry Neal, came from from Tottenham. But he scored um, a, a key goal, a, um, a delightful goal um, at Wrexham. Which um, you know really did uh, raise his profile and raise his popularity with with the Arsenal fans. But like you say, the run to the final, um, kind of if if the runs to the finals in seventy nine and eighty were dramatic, these these this run was the was the opposite because it was so straightforward. Uh, the final then facing <laughs> Ipswich Town, managed by uh, Bobby Robson. Yeah. Um, what was the feeling going into that game? Because, you know, for me, 1979, certainly the final or, or the cup run uh, I'm aware of, you know, in terms of listening to games on, on the radio on the way, but but watching an Arsenal game, 79 is the first one I remember. But, but 1978, what was the feeling going into that game? Was it a case that Arsenal were strong favourites? Did, did, did the Arsenal fans expect, I mean, as much as you can when you go into a final, was this a game that they expected to win? The expectation when they beat Orient in the semi was that Arsenal would win, but there were there were two problems really um, in that um, both Liam Brady and Malcolm McDonald were 
were not fully fit. Mm. So by by this time, Malcolm McDonald's knee was starting to cause him <clears throat> huge problems. And in the final, I mean, you can you can see um, that he is put through a couple of times, but but can't move because his knee had locked. And by then, he was having to kind of waggle his knee around to get his cartilage unlocked. It's not 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 a pleasant story, and very sad to see such a striker continuing. Mm. But I think the key thing is that Liam Brady played, um, but wasn't fully fit. And afterwards, Liam Brady said that, you know, it was his it was kind of like his biggest regret in that he played in that final. But there was no way that he could he could do himself justice because of um, of of his of his injury. Um, I think the other thing, the other interesting um, kind of subplot to this, which is often forgotten, is that Alan Hudson played in that final as well for Arsenal. Um now, Alan Hudson was another superbly gifted midfielder, but didn't get on at all with, with Terry Neal. He was like a loose cannon, really, at, at Arsenal. And so he did play in that final, but again, um, you know, did did very, very little on the day. Um, and Ipswich, I mean, I think uh, John Walk hit the post twice, Paul Mariner hit the bar before Roger Osborne scored the winner. And so Ipswich were definitely deserved winners. But I think you can't help thinking that if MacDonald and Brady had been fully fit that Arsenal should have won the FA Cup that that year they were they you know they were bitterly disappointed um and uh, it's a testimony I think to Don Howe's um coaching and Terry Neal's kind of gusto at that time that, that the team regrouped and were able to come back next year mm, in terms of the game itself the, the the winning goal from Ipswich came quite late yeah, that's right. It was David Geddes who uh, who cut who kind of put the put the cross in. Willie Young kind of was at sixes and sevens. It was one of those loose drilled in balls that defenders find a nightmare, and it kind of went loose to Osborne who who slammed it home. Osborne was so so overcome he fainted afterwards. So <laughs> I think I think to recall, he had um, I think twenty five relatives were bust in from from Ipswich because he's a Suffolk boy, and I think that was what that's the only thing the Arsenal players kind of thought of is that Ipswich were uh, a, a nice club if you see what I mean and yeah. they were their fans were that you know Ipswich are not one of their major rivals so I think uh, uh, that was about the only uh, positive that could be said of it for Arsenal I think that day mm. so Pat Rice I think it's said afterwards uh, you know that that Arsenal were lucky to escape with just a, a 1-0 defeat and it's interesting when you look at the yeah. Ipswich um, team sheet on that day there are a couple of names that will stick out from an Arsenal point of view Paul Mariner who you mentioned of course joined the club at a later yeah. date, but uh, in midfield, uh, a man called Brian Talbot, um, who who played for Ipswich that day and was part of the Arsenal squad um, the following season. Um, I mean, do do we know? Was it off the back of that particular game or that that performance that that uh, made Terry Neal bring him in? Yeah, I mean, Don Don Howe and Terry Neal have had their eyes on on um, Brian Talbot for, for a long time because he was the kind of a, a dynamic kind of box-to-box midfielder whom they whom they wanted. Um, so I think they'd had their eyes on, on him for a year, but he was exceptional that day. Um, and I think the the way he coped in the heat, you know, those bleached-out turfs mm. in the 70s at, at Wembley with the, with the heat in the background, they were very, very impressed with with uh, with how he played in the cup run during that season. Yeah, because of course Ipswich won their semi that year against West Brom at Highbury in the year that asked that you know when when Arsenal and Highbury used to stage semis. 
That's true. I mean, I think in the modern era, people are used to seeing semifinals take place at Wembley. And one of the great things about the FA Cup, certainly, you know, when I was growing up, was the fact that the semifinals would take place at different grounds, at a neutral venue, uh, you know, around uh, around the country in England. And, you know, the uh, I'm not saying, in, well, no, I am saying, I think it does spoil it a little bit when you're playing a semifinal at the, at the venue where, you know, you should be playing the final. And particularly back then when Wembley was, was sort of like the iconic ground to get to playing a semifinal at Old Trafford or Villa Park or Highbury or wherever it might be, I think really added something to the tournament. That's right. I mean, in 78, Arsenal played their semi at a dilapidated Stamford Bridge against Orient. I mean, 79, they played at Villa Park. And then in 1980, with those multiple semis they played, they, I mean, the final replay was at Highfield Road, where Coventry used to play. So, no, I agree. It made Wembley a more unique kind of occasion. And um, it added a bit more flavour and colour, if you like, to the cup run, the fact that the semis were played um, elsewhere. No, mm. I agree. So, 19. 19- 79 going into that FA Cup um, uh, season uh, Mm. people are aware of the concept of replays um, in cup competitions I think newer fans and um, people who haven't lived through the era of replay after replay Mm. after replay um, might find it a little bit hard to get their heads around the fact that in the third round Arsenal played Sheffield Wednesday four times before progressing uh, to the fourth round, there were, were um, you know, the initial tie and then three replays. It's a, uh, it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's football at its rawest and kind of almost its most, most brutal. I mean, I'm just again looking at the dates in front of me that they they played um, Sheffield Wednesday on the sixth of January at a frozen Hillsborough. Britain was locked in the, um, in, it was the winter of discontent as well. You know where mm. the rubbish. The rubbish hadn't been collected in some parts of the country. Um, graves weren't being being dug because of the the strikes. Um, and uh, Pat Jennings, the, the the goalkeeper, the Arsenal goalie, was pelted with um, with um, ice, with not even snowballs, ice balls by those those lovely Sheffield Wednesday fans on the Hillsborough Cop. Um, and it literally was a, a a fight to the death. I mean, they played they played those um, those five games within. I'm just working it out here. Sixteen days. Wow. So five five games in 16 days. The first on the 6th of Jan and the final one on the 22nd of, uh, of January. Um, and there really, really wasn't much in it. I mean, Jack Charlton had Sheffield Wednesday very, very well um, uh, set up. Um, I think um, that in the end... Uh, I'm just looking at the, the final one there. It was uh, Frank Stapleton and um, and uh, Steve Gatting that finally finished them off at Filbert Street. You know, Leicester City's Leicester City's old ground. That's because but the it, the replays it used to toss. Was that not the case that you toss a coin to see where the next game yeah, was being played? Yeah. That's that's correct, and because of the the frozen conditions as well. I mean, that was the year where um, Arsenal they played one league game only in in January against Forest, and there was nothing for the month. So it really was all about all about the FA Cup. It was a much it was an incredibly intense experience for the players, and I think that you know afterwards David O'Leary said how exhausting. The whole thing was because you know Arsenal players knew the FA Cup was going to be their best chance of glory, and I think you know the the, the FA Cup was more valued in those days as well. Um, so yeah, that's a, a key element, a key element to it. 
There's a, you know, there's something else, isn't there, when you have to play the same team over and over again. And even now, if sort of the fixture list throws up something strange, like you could, you could have a league game home and away against somebody, uh, you know, within six weeks now, but you might get a cup game somewhere in the middle. And playing a team three times in, let's say, six or eight weeks feels a bit like, oh, not them again. But when you play the same team five times in whatever you said, it's uh, from the 6th of January. Yeah, yeah, you know, it is... It, they must have hated the side of each other. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was insane. I mean, some of the players, um, you know, just they, they they said they saw more of each other. If you see, I mean, the players and their <laughs> own families, because it was all about you know play the game, travel to the next one, play the game, travel to the next one. The FA actually did debate before the final replay at Filbert Street about a coin toss or a penalty shootout to decide who would ultimately go through. They decided against it. They thought, no, no, it should it should be a fight to the death. But, um, you know, it's uh, it, it, it's testimony to what the FA Cup was like in those days. Yeah. So, look, eventually, um, you know, the, the, the sequence of results was 1-1, 1-1, 2-2, 3-3, and then a 2-0 win uh, at, Filbert Street. at Filbert Street for Arsenal to take us into the, the fourth round, a 2-0 win over Notts County, then a, yeah. a, a win over Nottingham Forest, and uh, another couple, another couple of games against Southampton. There was a replay there after an initial 1-1 draw. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's two interesting points come out of that in that Brian Talbot made his uh, made his uh, sort of FA Cup bow against Notts County in late January. But I think that the win away at Forest, you know, who were um, League Cup or sorry, um, League champions and would win the European Cup that year. Mm. I think it's possibly the most underrated Arsenal victory of that of that era, because there was a lot of talk that Clough wanted to win the FA Cup. Um, and going into the game, Forest were were uh, were, in, were in decent form. But Frank Stapleton scored a superb header. He sort of twisted his neck. Um, he was good at that. And, and arced, a, arced the header past Peter Shilton, who didn't even move. And it was in the mud at the city ground. And I do think that's probably the most underrated Arsenal victory of, of, of that era. It's, it's, there's, I think there's grainy clips of it left on YouTube, but it was a fantastic victory. Uh, a 2-0 win over Wolves in the semi-final, which yeah. set up a a final against Manchester United. And as I've said to you, it's the first game I really remember. And it's one that, you know, as a kid, I remember recreating, recreating the goals up and down the, the hallways of the house, much to my mother's uh, unhappiness as the ball went <laughs> slamming into cabinets and cupboards and doors and, and all that kind of thing. But, um, you know, it's a very, very famous final because of the way that it ended up. But for a long time, it looked as if it was going to be a fairly routine Arsenal win. It did. I mean, there's an interesting little aside to it in that before the game, um, George Mayle, who played for Arsenal in the 1930s, he did a bit of scouting for Terry Neal and Don Howe. And they sent him to watch Manchester United to see if they could sniff out, if he could sniff out any weaknesses with Man United. And what he said is that they're, they, they're a decent team, Man United. They weren't, they weren't exactly all conquering in that era. But their main weakness was that Gary Bailey, the goalkeeper, was not that confident on crosses. Mm. And so George Mayle suggested that if they could test him out in the air, then, um, you know, it might prove to be, uh, a, you know, a, a, an ace-up um, ace Arsenal sleeve, really. And in the first half, I mean, it, it went so smoothly with, um, you had... Uh, 
Talbot and Sunderland arriving together. You know, David Price screwed back a loose ball. It was a really, really um, well set up goal. Uh, there's still some who, do, who, who argue who got their first Talbot or, or Sunderland, but it was credited to um, to uh, Brian Talbot. Um, and then you know Frank Stapleton's kind of kind of bullet header, um, and then. The, the the jitters it, it wouldn't be Arsenal would it without no. a major <laughs> jitter in in the second half I mean some say quite harshly perhaps that that Steve the introduction of Steve Walford as a as a substitute um, kind of disrupted Arsenal's flow which is probably true I think Willie Young has, has said that and David O'Leary as well but I think the, their legs had gone I mean that you know the, the heavy Wembley turf on a blisteringly hot it was a hot day Monday wasn't it yeah it's a long long game and I think that really did um, cause cause them some issues um, but then Arsenal's winning goal I mean it's the the dynamism of, of Liam Brady who knew that if it went to extra time Arsenal would probably lose you know he drove forward pinpoint cross from Graham Ricks but then the George Mayle thing about Gary Bailey on the cross I mean Bailey is all at sea for that cross isn't mm. he? he is nowhere um, and you know Alan Sunderland's you know um, superb finish I guess and never, no one ever quite knows what Alan Sunderland did say as he wheeled away after uh, scoring that winning <laughs> goal but for me probably like for you if we're roughly the same age you know I'm, I'm late very late 40s now um, his um, his his kind of a butterfly blue collars um, uh, fluttering in the breeze as he's running away cursing is, is my prime memory mm. of Arsenal as a child and, and will always will always be I think. Yeah I mean just to sort of go back a little bit you know it's it's 2-0 to Arsenal until the 86th minute and I do remember distinctly thinking this football thing is great it's <laughs> this is brilliant like we're going to win the cup final and there's nothing anyone could do about that. And then Gordon McQueen scored in the 86th minute yeah. and Sammy McElroy scored in the 88th minute. And all of a sudden it's 2-2 and you're thinking, what the hell? And all I can remember, um, you know, I think, or we can all remember rather, Liam Brady um, sucks down around his ankles because he was absolutely yeah. knackered and he played it out to Graham Ricks and the cross came in and Sunderland Sunderland mm. was there at the back post. He had the energy to get in and, and score that goal. So, you know, within, you know, I think we've all experienced this in football since, but for your first real football experience to be like this roller coaster of, oh, this is great. Oh, Jesus, this is terrible. Oh, fuck, it's great again. Yeah. You know, it's sort of... <laughs> I don't know if it sets the tone uh, for your for your footballing life in some way. Like you can learn lessons from from those five minutes about how quickly things can change in football. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I never ever take Arsenal winning for for granted, and I do think it's rooted in that afternoon yeah. in uh, in May nineteen seventy nine. No, I I think you're I think you're absolutely right. But it's um it it, it does add to the the list of of achievements that Arsenal have had, where they somehow do do the business, if you like, in in the very last minute. You think of the number of dramatic games Arsenal have been involved in. Anfield '89, um, you know the Sampdoria semi-final in uh, in 1995, where you know last-minute heroics do do see us through. And as you say, it does. That, that, I think maybe that '79 final is Arsenal in a package for me. Is the archetypal Arsenal match? Mm, 
it is. And I think it will yeah. be. It's still my favourite memory, actually, uh, of, of being an Arsenal fan, is that 79 Cup final. Partly because the FA Cup, as I say, was such a glamour competition in those days, but partly because of the sheer drama surrounding it. Yeah, I mean... Again, maybe to put it in uh, perspective for some younger listeners or, or newer fans, back then there was not uh, a great deal of football on the television. There was match of the day on a Saturday night, and you know live football as we know it now just was not a thing. Um, so the FA Cup final and the FA Cup itself, it really was a hugely glamorous competition, a big day like you, uh, I'm sure, can remember coverage on the, the TV starting at, um, you know, nine in the morning and they get on the bus with the players and they go, you know, through the streets and all kinds of interviews. And if I, I could be remembering this wrong, um, but but it wasn't a case that it was just one channel that had it. If I remember, BBC would have some stuff on and ITV would have some stuff on on the same day. Am I misremembering yeah, that? they'd almost be competing against yeah. each other for, for viewers. It's like you say, I think, I'm just trying to think of the live games that were available then. FA Cup final, European Cup final, I remember, because obviously there were a lot of English teams involved at the time. World and Cup. Some, and, and the ho- Yeah, World Cup. The home internationals as well. Mm, oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. apart from that, that was it. I mean, mm. I remember one, It was I think it was Tony Gubber on the morning of the FA Cup final on the BBC. Um, and he talked to Willie Young, who, you know, doesn't really uh, suffer fools gladly. And he talked to him about uh, what had happened uh, the year before um, when he said, uh, you know, could you have done better with that ball that eventually <laughs> found its way to Roger Osborne? And Willie Young just said no. And that was kind of like the, the end of the interview. Willie Young didn't like being reminded <laughs> of what had happened <laughs> the year before. But finally, he got his... Uh, he uh, he got his revenge. He he made up for that mm. with, a, with a great display in in seventy nine. But I think the other thing worth, worth saying is that of course all the um, matches or all the ties in the third round onwards were played at the same time on the same day. Mm. Um, apart from the replays, and I think that did make the FA Cup weekend more more special. I and mean, if you look at you know what happened last month, I think every single. Fifth round tie was it was on a set or fourth round tie was on a separate day mm. or, or was, was split up during the week, and um, it does um, demean the competition. I, w- I would say. Yeah, look, there there are other things that have impacted the the importance uh, of of the FA Cup down the years. You know, the increase yeah. in in Premier League live football, the Champions League. Um, you know, there was European football back then, of course, but the uh, the European Cup was only open to the winners. Of, of leagues, so you could have something crazy like Liverpool playing Bohemians, you know, who won the Irish, uh, the League of Ireland, perhaps, you know, things like that. Um, so there wasn't this uh, wall-to-wall thing, and it was a competition that was really uh, prestigious, and I think maybe that's why it sticks with us, uh, and other people can be a bit more dismissive of it because they've grown up in a different generation and that's fine but I think that's why uh, you know if you are of a certain age it, it's definitely a competition which resonates and you know that 1979 FA Cup final like you it, it it's really memorable for me as you get older memories start to fade but that one's pretty indelible that's right that's right no it, it absolutely is I mean we're, we're lucky as Arsenal fans in Arsenal have won the FA Cup so often but I think that this, I mean there are some Arsenal fans who, who kind of re- re- regard the FA Cup now as a lesser competition competition i think i mean i understand that view but i thought i find it sad though because 
you know, the 1930 FA Cup final, you know, the um, the Graf Zeppelin final was the first mm. trophy Arsenal ever won. Um, it, you have the, the 79 final, the, the, the 71 final where we completed the double. The, every time we've won the FA Cup, it's been a key turning point in Arsenal history, not just, oh, you know, it's another competition we've um, we've won. And then, of course, you know, 2014, when we won the FA Cup, was the first time in nine years that Arsenal had won a trophy. So I always looked to the FA Cup as being um, massively, massively important to the club. But I am an Arsenal fan of a certain age, and I know sure. that not everyone shares that point of view. Anymore. Sure. And look, you know, that's fine. You know, um, we all yeah. have our own experiences of it and, and everything else. Um, yeah. Uh, so look, 1980 Arsenal because they've won the um, the FA Cup, they're into Europe and they're playing in the European Cup Winners Cup um, yeah. uh, again, which is sort of the equivalent of the the Europa League now. Uh, the two competitions, the UEFA Cup and the Cup Winners Cup, were merged to make the Europa League some yeah. years ago. But the Cup Winners Cup was was on the agenda in 1980, and we're going to talk about that. But again, I suppose it's only right that in the uh, the FA Cup campaign, we kick off with uh, uh, another replay, this time against Cardiff. That's right, that's right. I mean, there were replays against Cardiff, and there was uh, a replay against Bolton um, as well. And yet again, Arsenal were playing against very, very well set up lower division division clubs who did not give uh, an inch. I mean, I know that at, uh, away at Cardiff, Cardiff came pretty close to knocking out the uh, the FA Cup the FA Cup winners, you know, Arsenal, and they drew one all away at, at Bolton as well. Frank Stapleton rescued us, but Bolton puts on us under enormous pressure for the whole game, showing just how seriously everyone everyone took the the FA Cup in in those in those days. So yeah, third round, two games against Cardiff. Uh, fourth round, a two nil win over Brighton. In the in the fifth round, uh, you know, two games against Bolton, a one one draw and a three nil win. Uh, the quarter final is a a 2-1 win over Watford and then we get to the semi-final it's Mm. Liverpool and again this is something I remember um, not having seen it but having listened to it and having had to listen to it kind of surreptitiously because um, some of these replays were on in the in the evenings and you're supposed to be in bed as a 9 or 10 year old but you've got a little radio going on and you're desperate to hear what's happening Four games against Liverpool before we reach the final. I suppose it's worth putting in context how good Liverpool were and how dominant they were around that time. You know, in the 70s and the 80s, Liverpool, um, you know, as good as people look at them uh, these days, were were just the uh, the team in English football. Liverpool were unstoppable um, in those days. They were, as a team, they were, you know, almost almost perfect. They had everything. They had, uh, they had pace. They had, um, they had skill, and they had that tough centre embodied by by uh, by Graham Souness and, uh, mm. and Jimmy Case, which meant that they were a formidable unit. I always remember Alan Hansen talking about it. Um, he was he was talking about a, a, t- a modern team that lost three on the trot. And as he said, we never lost one on the trot. They were, um, you know, almost uh, un- unbreakable. Um, but I think what I love about those semi-finals between Arsenal and Liverpool is not that they were classic occasions, but it, it kind of embodies the fact that Arsenal may not have been challenging for the league, but as cup competitors... 
they were absolutely superb and they knew that they were they they were willing to go the distance and stick it out and they played what i would say they regarded those you know that the, the semis as almost like a game of chess the main thing was not to lose and they would take their time and um uh it, it, it just to just to avoid being being knocked out yeah the other thing to say about this stretch of games if i'm right is that at the same time as they're playing uh, replay after replay against the best team in english football there's also the cup winners cup semi-final going on um a two-legged affair against Juventus, um, who, of course, are one of the biggest teams in European football, um, a, a club which we'll talk about, Liam Brady, um, etc. now in a moment. But when you look at the dates, from the 9th of April through to the 1st of May, Arsenal played Juventus, Liverpool, 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 Juventus, West Brom, Liverpool, Liverpool. It's yeah. It's an incredible run of games so before we go get to the um to the juventus thing you know let's just look at the 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 games that brought us through to that final in 1980 against uh west ham yeah i mean i think that um the the player that that kind of emerged from the pack in in those in the semi-finals is alan sunderland i mean alan sunderland um is 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 not perhaps regarded as a as an Arsenal great, and yet if you look at his scoring record when he came to us, he always did the business in big games. So he scored the hat trick at Tottenham um, in in uh, Christmas '78. He you know scored a double at, at Manchester United the season earlier. Um, the bigger the match, the more likely he was to put on a good show. And I think the 79 Cup final showed that. But um, in two of the, those replays, um, the first replay and the second replay, it was an Alan Sunderland goal that actually saved Arsenal. And the Liverpool players afterwards, Terry McDermott said in the press, he couldn't believe that Alan Sunderland had never got an England cap playing like that. Mm. But he was frustratingly um, inconsistent. But he went the went the mile in those semi-finals and was arguably the outstanding player because they were. And as you say, you know, there's not much footage that exists of those games. There's hardly any. But from the reports that were written, they were hugely cagey defensive um, uh, affairs. You know, always the, the, the attacking threats came from Dalglish um, and McDermott at one end and, you know, Sunderland and, and Stapleton at the other one. But by then, Arsenal were looking tired. And Alan Sunderland was the one who stayed fresh, I think, um, during during that semi. But there are extended highlights of the of the the final replay, um, where Arsenal won at Highfield Road, and you can see that both teams are literally going at each other in quite a quite a pacey and in, in, in an innovative way. They they still look reasonably fresh in that in that key game. Uh, yeah, it's just an amazing amount of football to play. And again, that sort of war of attrition when you're playing the same team over and over again. It's like you're, you're second-guessing things. Are they going to do this this way this time? Are they going to change something up? Uh, and again, the sight of, you know, those players and, and such a good team like Liverpool, you know, very physical team as well because they could put it about. Yeah, um, that's right. I mean, Liverpool are obviously going for the going for a double. Mm. Um uh, and it, I, th- I seem to recall, I may be wrong here, I think Arsenal's winning goal came from a mistake. One of their players fell over 
in the build-up to it. Well, it might have been Ray Kennedy. I can't quite remember. But one of their players fell over. Um, there was a good cross, and Brian Talbot scored a superb diving diving header. But, of course, they had to then hold out, you know, for, for the rest of the game. And I remember Brian Talbot saying that Arsenal just sat back and sat back and soaked up. It was almost like a rope-a-dope tactic, you know? They just sat sat on the sat on the rope sat on the, and tried to hit Liverpool on the counter. They didn't quite have the legs for that, mm. but they just about, you know, they just about saw Liverpool off. I think another interesting little anecdote on, on the back of that is that before that run of games you mentioned, that Arsenal, um, because of their heavy schedule of FA Cup and Cup Winners' Cup games, wanted to postpone the North London derby with Tottenham. But our lovely neighbours wouldn't allow us to do that. So Arsenal had to feel field sorry a very inexperienced team at White Hart Lane um, on the seventh they played Paul Barron instead of Pat Jennings they played Steve Walford they played um, Paul Davis um, who was there was one of his first games also Paul Vasson who scored one of the goals that day and of course that's where the chant comes we beat Spurs with six reserves um, <laughs> which is always, always always goes down well but that kind of was the was the the beginning of, of that huge run mm. of games so in the middle of those games Arsenal have played um, a, a cup winners cup semi-final and there was a 1-1 draw at Highbury against Juventus you know Juventus an amazing team and you mentioned Paul Vassen, who uh, was the, the hero on the night in in Juventus, in Turin, uh, scoring a, a late goal uh, to take Arsenal through to, to a European final. Well, that's right. I mean, Juventus had never been beaten at home by, uh, by I don't think, certainly by any English team. I don't know if they'd ever been defeated at, at, in European competition. And again, it was, they, I mean, Juventus had drawn 1-1 at Arsenal. It was, um, you, you, you there was the, a, a very, very uh, hard tackle by Bobby Bettiger on David O'Leary, which went right through, you know, smashed his um, um, smashed his um, shin pad. Um, mm. And O'Leary was really struggled after after that injury. There's a lot of um, uh, bad feeling towards Arsenal in, in Turin because uh, Terry Neal had, had uh, labelled Bettiger a disgrace. Um, and there were banners out, you know, in Turin, as well as the, the Roman candles and the fireworks saying, Neil is a dog. Um, hard to imagine <laughs> anyone hating Terry Neal that much. But there was a, a lot of um, angst about it. But it's almost like Juventus didn't seem to know what to do. They drawn 1-1 at Highbury. And they didn't seem to know whether to go and kill the game or kind of hit Arsenal on the counter or, or, or what. And the Arsenal players said that Juventus disappointed them on the night. They expected more of them. Mm. And as it went later on, Arsenal were able to press forward more and more and more. And then, again, it was a superb cross by by Graham Ricks um, onto the head of, of Paul Vassen, who, who couldn't really miss from that distance. But it was um, a magnificent uh, occasion and a superb Arsenal victory, which I don't think anyone really expected. Um, you know, even the Arsenal players sort of were quite quite mute about it. They didn't mm. almost seem to know what to make of it because uh, they hadn't expected to win there at all. But there were Arsenal, tired Arsenal, um, suddenly um, reaching two finals, which would take place within a week of each other. Mm. Paul Vassen, unfortunately, um, died very young in, in fairly tragic circumstances. And on the podcast mm. in the past, we've had a, a, a look at the the book, which I, I think you can still get on, on uh, online, if you like, a Kindle version, yeah. maybe. or Stuart Taylor. Uh, 
Yeah, by yeah. Stuart Taylor. Yeah, it's called Stuck in a Moment, the ballad of, of Paul Vasson. So you'll, you'll find yeah. it around if you want to read that. Um, yeah. Very, very good book, yeah. Uh, so Arsenal are in the FA Cup final. They're in the Cup Winners' Cup final. And we talked, John, about how the end of the 1979 final can give you a bit of a lesson in what football can do to you in terms of how you view the game and how quickly things can change. But I think as well, um, (laughs) this isn't a podcast with a happy ending, folks. Sorry. Um, (laughs) But, you know, to watch slash listen to your team lose two finals um, within a few days of each other really gives you a kind of, okay, I see how this thing can go. Okay, I'm, I'm in it. I'm committed to it, but I know it's going gonna, it's gonna to gut punch me more often than not. Uh, and I think that perhaps gives you a bit of grounding as well. But first, the FA Cup final. Mm. Um, this really was a game that Arsenal were expected to win because West Ham, uh, although now a Premier League club were in the uh, the what was then the old second division yeah. and you know Arsenal were the favorites and unfortunately it was a day which uh, worked out for the underdogs that's right i mean i think that had arsenal not had that backlog of games they would they would have beaten west ham probably 80 times out of 100 if not if not more than that but unfortunately on the day it's if any if anyone ever w- wants to watch it it's a, it's a, it's a grim watch arsenal are, are ridiculously leggy they can they can they are really really struggling it was west ham look uh, look quite sprightly it's actually quite an even game um, there's not really uh, a lot between them, um, but um, what West Ham had was they had Alan Devonshire, who was certainly that their standout performer on the day. Who was able to zip around the the Arsenal defence, and then uh, you know you have a, a loose ball which which Trevor Brooking then died for. I think it was I think it was probably the only headed goal he ever scored in his mm. career. Billy Bonds, the West Ham captain, he said to Brooking, what are you doing scoring with your head? And Brooking kind of shrugged. Um, Arsenal had very, very few few chances in, in the game. And I guess maybe even more memorable than, uh, than Brooking's winner is, of course, Willie Young's <laughs> professional foul on, on Paul Allen. Um, I mean, it's... Um, yeah, it's, he- uh, it's it's a period piece, isn't it? Really, it certainly foul. is. You can find it on YouTube if you look up Willie yeah. Young foul FA Cup final. You will see it, <laughs> and and basically, uh, to set the scene for people, you know, Arsenal. I think is quite late in the game, and Arsenal are obviously pushing up. It's a big Wembley pitch. It's a, another hot day in May, and uh, Paul Allen, who is the seventeen uh, years old, seventeen years of age, who is the was he the cousin of of uh, Tottenham former Arsenal. Uh, player for a second Clive, Clive yeah. Allen uh, he was his yeah. cousin um he's racing through on goal he gets in behind the defense and and you know uh from somewhere comes Willie Young charging in and literally just launches himself <clears throat> takes his legs out from underneath him uh, stops him going through on goal and gets a yellow card <laughs> for his trouble uh, that's right I, I and think- he li- he's like he's lying 
prostate on the on the turf, Willie Young. The referee comes over and he just holds his hands up and says it's a fair cop. Yeah. But Willie Young, Willie Young says that afterwards, Paul Allen said, uh, "No problem, big man. I'd have done the same." Yeah, of course I mean, they uh, they all would, wouldn't they? At that point. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, Willie Young's a, a Scottish kind of ogre. I remember a figure in that, and, and Nick Hornby wrote that you know it's just a, a <laughs> it's just a, an archetypal Arsenal experience. Big bad Willie Young hacking down Paul Allen mm. as he's about to go through and, and make it 2-0 to, to West Ham. But it, it kind of sums up the game. It, it wasn't a, a, a good, a vintage Arsenal performance. They they had no legs and it was the only way that he was ever going to stop Paul Allen was by was by doing that. But it, it's, it's a, it was a thoroughly depressing day for, mm. for everyone concerned. I mean, at, at half-time, Don Howe told the players to get in the showers, you know, cold showers. And, but David O'Leary said they just had nothing left in, in the tank mm. and that foul by Willie Young I think brought in new rules <laughs> where, where where people say you know what there probably should be a, a greater punishment for a player who's uh, preventing yeah. a goal scoring opportunity in the way that Willie Young did there and um, yeah well I mean there's a little piece of uh, history or contribution to the game yeah. from, from, from Willie Young that's lasted uh, a long <laughs> number of years Willie Young is, is quite kind of sanguine about the whole thing. He says uh, he says it was a it was a good foul. I just tapped his foot. I never hurt him. It was just had to be done. It was a, it was a professional foul. He was a professional and he fouled him in a professional way. Mm. He sure did. Um, so a few days later, Arsenal face uh, Valencia in the European Cup Winners' Cup final, a game which takes place at the uh, the Heisel Stadium in Brussels, uh, a scene yeah. for for something uh, much worse in, in the 1980s. Uh, but from an Arsenal footballing perspective, uh, another night where it just didn't go. Uh, the heavy legs obviously must have played a part after so many games. I think it was maybe the 65th or 64th game of the season, you know, which is That's an, correct. It's, it's yeah. an amazing amount of football to play. Um, Nil-nil after extra time and the game goes to penalties. Um Liam Brady missed for Arsenal. I remember being fairly heartbroken at that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, both teams were, look, look tired. I mean, the, ma- the main contest of the night was between David O'Leary and Mario Kempes, Argentina's 1978 World Cup winner. Mm. And Kempes got very, very little out of uh, Liam, uh, out of David O'Leary. I, I think I said Liam Brady. I meant David O'Leary. He got very, very little change out of David O'Leary all night. But apart from that, there was not that much of note. Valencia created the best chances. Alan Sunderland had a decent diving header that was saved by um, Valencia's goalkeeper. But yeah, it kind of it's it reached that inevitable kind of uh, kind of conclusion um, of of penalties, which again were very which were almost unheard of amongst British audiences in those days. I can't think of another one that a British club or team was involved in before that. Mm. Well, it didn't work out. Uh, Brady missed. Stapleton, Sunderland, Talbot and, and Hollands scored for Arsenal and uh, came down to Graham Ricks, um, who missed his penalty. So a really disappointing way to end the season um, from a footballing point of view. And- yeah, it was a real daisy cutter penalty. I think the, the Valencia goal was called Carlos Pereira. I seem to remember John Motson commentating on it. Mm. And it was, it's quite, you, you know, you have the whole thing, Paul Barron, the substitute goalkeeper was looking the other way and Graham Ricks kind of fainted. To, he, he was messing around with Carlos Pereira before it and went to faint the other way and kind of made a joke of it. But Graham Ricks looked nervous 
Um, and re- regrettably, his go- his uh, his penalty reflected that, and it was, it was quite easily saved. It was a very very disappointing night. Yeah, it was, and obviously that summer was a disappointing one from an Arsenal uh, perspective as well, because uh, it was Liam Brady's last game for the club. And I can remember, I don't know if you remember this or if somebody else can remember this at the time. I remember uh, in the in terms of the FA Cup final, he gave away his loser's medal. And there was a specific term for it um, in terms of what that meant. I can't remember who he gave it to or or what it was, but I always remember in like the football magazines, whether it was shoot or whatever, they used a specific term and I can't remember what it was, but he gave away his his, uh, FA Cup uh, loser's medal that night and he joined Juventus that summer. Yeah, he did. I mean, it's. I look. I look back on on this era of Arsenal with kind of in a bittersweet way because obviously uh, it was a big thing getting to finals. It was a massive deal winning the '79 Cup final, and yet you do think that w- one of the reasons that Brady left and Frank Stapleton left the following summer was because they thought that Arsenal weren't being sufficiently competitive enough in the in the transfer market mm. there was some there were some rumors that they would they were going to sign um um, they were going to sign Mark Lawrenson. I know that was discussed from um, Brighton. There were rumours that they were going to sign a Dutch international, not Cruyff, I forget his name. Was it Rensenbrink, perhaps? Oh, um, he hit the post, didn't he? Of, yeah. There was a lot of talk about that, but it didn't happen. They signed John Hollins, who was a very good player, but there was a feeling they, they Arsenal could and should have, have pushed for more in in that era, I mean, Terry Neal always said that you know football wasn't as big a business as it as it was today, and that it wasn't regarded as being the Arsenal way, if you like, to splash huge sums of money on players. But I do think it's a kind of like a lost. Um, lost chance because Arsenal were a very, very good team. And what they need is they need more depth of more depth of squad. And had they got that, mm. they could have perhaps, perhaps pushed on a bit more. But as you say, you know, Brady left that summer, was replaced by was it well, it wasn't replaced, but Peter Nicholas came in from Crystal Palace to to come in and then Stapleton left and the whole thing fell apart very, very, very quickly, which is very, very sad, I think, from an Arsenal fan's perspective in that era. Yeah, certainly, you know, a, a favourite like Liam Brady who had, you know, grown up at the club and, and everything else um, leaving because he felt the ambitions of the club weren't weren't quite in line with his own uh, a slightly familiar tale. Um, there's, there is an... what, what I find sometimes find galling in that era is that in David O'Leary's book, he uh, he says that when he was on international duty with the with the Republic of Ireland, that Brady and Stapleton would often say, "Oh, you know, what are you still doing at Arsenal?" And, and you know, O'Leary's the one who remained loyal. And I guess it's ironic that O'Leary is the only one out of the three who did end up with a, a championship medal, isn't he? he yeah, one in eighty nine and and uh, and ninety one. I guess the best things come to those that wait. But um, it doesn't alter the fact that Arsenal should have pushed on after the early 80s and, and, and made more of it than they did. Mm, there is a, an episode, if people want to go back and find it, there is an episode uh, with Liam Brady, a big long interview I did with him last year, and we talk uh, you know, quite a bit about his decision to leave and why he, he left for Juventus. But John, listen, we better leave it there. Um, hopefully it's been um, good info for people. I mean, in, in fairness, it's not the, uh, the uh, like I said, there's no happy ending to this particular podcast, given the fact that, <laughs> given that we didn't uh, win 
win those finals, you know, to to win just one of four finals in three years is a, is a bit um, unfortunate. Boring. Yeah, but it's it's very Arsenal, isn't it? Yeah, very very Arsenal. You know, the the the, the outcome never quite meets uh, meets the expectation. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, you know, you I, I guess you would have it. Uh, any other way or you'd have it the other way around if you could but that's you know that's not what we signed up for uh john thank you very much indeed really appreciate your time lovely thanks very much hi this is rachel fisher and this is desi jenikin and we host the hollywood crime scene podcast we're really excited to tell you about the best christmas ever on amc plus where every day feels like christmas morning it's the holiday season and that means it's time to see old friends like buddy the elf heat miser and clark griswold plus you get a stocking stuffed with highly acclaimed amc series like the walking dead and Mad Men, new series like gangs of london and the walking dead world beyond they're all here on amc plus so celebrate the best Christmas ever, anytime, anywhere. AMC Plus is the gift that keeps on giving all year long. Sign up today at amcplus.com. AMC Plus, only the good stuff. This holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you very much indeed to John. You can find him on Twitter at John Sperling One, at John Sperling One. And if you're interested in some of the books that he's written, why not just call your local independent bookstore and ask them to order it for you? They'll be happy to do it, and they would be very grateful of the business right now. It might take an extra day or two to get the book in for you, but look... Nobody's going anywhere for a little while, so you can just have some patience and just know that when the book arrives, you get a warm feeling in your heart that a local business has benefited from your transaction and the money hasn't gone in to swell the coffers and the profits of a non-taxpaying corporation who don't give a fuck about anything or anyone. But, you know, whatever you feel yourself, you, you do it your way. I'm not here to to tell you what to do. Hope you enjoyed the show. Um, Again, just please stay safe and stay healthy and stay well. Uh, We're keeping things going as much as possible uh, on the site as we can. There's not a great deal of news, but there is a daily blog every day that will be there for you. Um, We'll have the podcasts uh, going throughout for as long as it takes. James and I will be here on Monday. We'll be recording an Arscast Extra. And uh, please join us for that. In the meantime, have a great weekend. Enjoy your living room or your back garden or your balcony or wherever it is you've got to hang out until we can all venture outside again. But uh, please stay well, please stay healthy, and we'll catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye.
Welcome to Poetry Hour here on the BBC. Poetry is an art form which delights us, enchants us, and at times surprises us. Not simply through the words, but through their source and the delivery. Few would expect a former professional footballer to be a purveyor of this most majestic art form, but that is very much the case. Andre Arshavin, in his new book, Mr. Kipling is My Dad, has captured something that few thought possible. Here he is in the studios of the BBC, reading from his book. The poem is entitled... I hope a bird shits in your mouth. <clears throat> I hope a bird shit in your mouth. I hope you swallow it. I hope a bird has a seed in its poo. And you swallow that too. Then I hope a tree grow in your neck. And you die gushing blood from every orifice. But mostly, I hope a bird shits in your mouth. <laughs> this holiday season, treat yourself. Treat yourself to candy. Celebrate the holiday season with the Holiday Crush. They've sprinkled candy with a holiday theme and fun-packed challenges every week for five whole weeks, finishing on January 4th. The more challenges you complete, the better your chances of unwrapping delicious rewards. So, are you ready to crush the holidays? Play the Holiday Crush now. Download it from the App Store, Google Play, or Windows Store for free. Terms and conditions apply.